0: The concept of difference uh, in Wales is, by definition, a very complex issue. Work traditionally has uh, given particular occupational groups a very clear sense of identity. Perhaps the stereotype of Wales is the minor, and work was almost the source of uh, social and personal identity. It wasn't a job, you were a minor, and that was a very clear sense of uh, social and political solidarity derived from that occupation. But of course that's uh, a long gone industry and Wales is much more diverse in its economic activity, far more different types of work now from the old heavy industrial base that we would have identified in the last century and Wales now spans almost all the industrial classifications in terms of work that can be found in Wales and that clearly creates as much difference as it does connections. People in different occupational categories have a very different experience of the world of work from the lifetime jobs of the mining industry. Perhaps the norm has now become highly casualized processes of labour where you don't have a job for life, you have a job for as long as that unit continues to, to satisfy a market. We have people holding In Wales, portfolios of jobs in part-time, casualised work where it takes perhaps three jobs to make a, a living income, and that creates a massive amount of difference in terms of the quality of life, in terms of the experience of life people have, in terms of their life opportunities. We also have a high degree of worklessness... And that creates perhaps one of the most fundamental differences in Wales. Uh, In common sense terms, the haves and the have-nots. To be a little bit more uh, socially scientific about that, we have people living in officially defined poverty in Wales. Uh, That is less than 60% of average national income. And we have currently around about 31% of children grow up in a family where the family income is less than that 60% of the average. That's a very critical difference. It leads to a wide experience of life that we would now uh, use the term social exclusion to describe where those people's education, their health, their housing, their access to transport, the very structure and nature of their life will be determined by that poverty. And that's a critical form of difference in Wales. Clearly, there are policies that, uh, that attempt to eradicate that poverty. We have had some success in the last 10 years. We saw, in fact, child poverty reduce from about 33% to about 24%, but in the last two years, it's gone back up to about 27%. And you know, that's a, a serious setback to the kind of policies that we felt would help eradicate that consequence of worklessness. What can you do about it? Well, you try and um, diversify the economy, you try and develop new work opportunities, you try and link the unskilled with the new skills that emerging industries require. But this is incredibly complex to do. There are locational difficulties where the, the people out of work aren't where the new work opportunities are. This presents government, in this case the Welsh Assembly government, with huge challenges, particularly as we we know we're currently in a recession, where the creation of work is uh, is even more difficult than it was prior to that recession. We also have a, a significant skills shortage in Wales. The corollary of poverty is very poor educational attainment and it becomes a kind of a self-repeating cycle in that children from poor families do very badly in the education system and then themselves enter the labour market in a highly disadvantaged state and uh, replicate the poverty that they experience as children. So very major challenges. Interestingly, I think research, looking at the the pattern of work in Wales, is is actually quite rare. What we've tended to research, if anything, is, is the state of worklessness. And I've been involved in a project recently looking at the very high levels of incapacity benefit in the Heads of the Valleys region. We've been doing that research really to try and identify what the barriers are to people returning to work. Now, some of those are fairly obvious. Um, when there's an absence of work opportunities, then people find it very difficult to return to work. But what we've actually found is that in many instances, people are prevented from having the ambition to return to work by very strong peer cultures. Where worklessness has been the norm for the last 20 to 25 years, we've seen develop a culture that actually shapes the identity of people in in communities where there's a high level of worklessness so that they don't actually identify themselves as potential workers. They don't have the, the internal vision, if you like, of what it is to work. They have very few people in their peer group who have had the work experience and they have very few role models of people who actually have gone out and made a career for themselves in the outside world. So we've found in many of the communities we've we've looked at highly depressed ambitions, particularly amongst young people, in terms of what their work aspirations might be. And what we've also looked at is what, what you do about that, and we've looked at a number of projects... That uh, attempt to bring people back from that state of worklessness to a, a work ready state. And what we find is that what's needed is some very bespoke and personalised services to work with people to overcome a range of problems that might start at the, the, the one end of just simple low confidence from not being externally active outside the home to very serious problems of mental health, including you know, ma- major problems with uh, depression that have resulted largely from a long-term unemployment. And that support has to be sustained over anything up to three years to get someone from a state of worklessness to a state of employability. Dave talks about the relationship between evidence and argument in social sciences. In writing the chapter on work, the kind of research I had to do and the evidence I looked for varied considerably. One would obviously start with the conventional primary statistical sources, like the census, for example. So, if we want to look at change in occupational categories over time, we might look at two or three censuses, which would give us a uh, a 30-year period of change and we can see the changes in the industrial classifications as, for example, mining and steelworking have declined and work in retail has, has increased considerably. We'd look in that body of evidence and see, for example, that the public sector in Wales is a huge employer and we can break that down into health and education and see some very direct evidence of the patterns of work that would be evident in Wales. However, primary evidence um, doesn't give us a personalised view of what the experience of unemployment is, for example. So to do that, we might want to interview people who have experienced unemployment for a long period of time. In the study um, of incapacity benefit, we actually worked with some claimants who had been unemployed for 15 years or more. And we were able to actually have a very personal view of that experience, and its effects on the individuals in their own perspective. So a very qualitative approach to research, which gives the the research respondent a very clear voice in describing their experience. Some social scientists might argue that's not an objective approach. The statistic on unemployment, it's highly factual, we can trace it over time. However, I think you have to balance that very factual approach with a more qualitative approach, that actually gives us an insight into the social impact of large-scale social phenomena. So at the level of society, we may have a central concern with the unemployment rate, but at the level of perhaps community or family, we would want to explore with the individual the experience of that unemployment over an extended period of time, which calls for a very different body of evidence.